Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. My name is Patty Peltecos and I'll be your host this hour. Today's show was pre-recorded on Thursday, January 5th, 2023. And since this show was pre-recorded, we won't be taking your questions during the hour. You can send us your comments by emailing talk at wortfm.org. On today's show, writer Chloe Sorvino will be talking with me about her new book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. Chloe leads the coverage of food, drink, and agriculture at Forbes. Before we dive into Chloe's research and reporting, I want to let listeners listeners know that I'm a member of two organizations that are doing everything they can to improve meat processing for smaller-scale producers in Wisconsin. Those organizations are the Wisconsin Farmers Union and the Meatsmith Co-op. Members and staff of Wisconsin Farmers Union, and for that matter, the National Farmers Union, are working really hard to make it easier for small and medium-scale farmers and ranchers to survive and thrive. Among other things, Farmers Union wants to increase the number of local slaughter and butchering facilities. Why? Because Wisconsin, like most states, is losing the processing facilities that will work with small-scale producers. What that means, and this is important even if you don't eat meat, is that the producers who are raising heritage breeds, who are following regenerative grazing and farming practices, practices that rely on livestock, well, it means that those producers could disappear because they don't have places to take their animals. Okay, you might be thinking, Patty, big hairy deal, so what? Well, WORT listener, over the last 40-some years, Many rural communities in Wisconsin have lost almost all of the small businesses that catered to and relied on small-scale farmers. You may not see it in Madison, but you can see it if you drive through what used to be thriving farm communities. And the only way to restore some life to those towns is to make sure that the services smaller-scale farmers need are there. And those services include processing meat. I'm also a supporting member of the Meatsmith Co-op, a producer and worker-owned cooperative whose mission is, quote, to promote the well-being of people, animals, and land by providing access to humane on-farm harvest, nose-to-tail butchery, locally produced meats and educational opportunities, all with a focus on fostering the economic growth and resilience of our community. Okay, so enough about me. It's now time to start talking with Chloe about Raw Deal. Chloe Servino, welcome to A Public Affair. Thanks so much for having me and super excited to hear about all you're involved already with meatpacking. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And Chloe, I just wanted to get started by you kind of giving me a little background on how you became the person who covers food and agriculture at, at Forbes. I mean, this is this is a beat that I guess I don't normally think of as being something that Forbes would would be covering. So so why your beat? 
Well, it's a good point that you make because I really kind of had to fight my way into creating this as a beat to begin with. Uh, I started at Forbes out on the desk that does all the valuations, the networks for our signature billionaires list, the Forbes 400, the world billionaires list. And through that work, I was there for five years. I started specializing on how much wealth there was in these different pockets of agribusiness and food making. And because of that, I, I realized more and more and did so many different stories on and different profiles on these specific billionaires. And I realized that we didn't have anyone covering the day to day of how this food system has been co-opted by this power and these billionaires. And, you know, it, a lot of it has led to, you know, continuing to line their pockets, um, but also causing environmental desecration, harmful health. Um, and so I really kind of fought to make this a beat and have now been doing this for four years and really have gotten to dig into lots of different kind of climate, food, environmental uh, investigations. Well, great. And you also have composting worms at home? I do. And that was something that I, I've loved doing over the past few years. It really helps me take an active role in just acknowledging the, the waste that we produce at home. Even small, and then, you know, I, I use the soil for my garden and continue to do herbs and, and different lettuces and different uh you know, produce throughout the year, depending on the season. We're in New York, so can't get everything all all the time. But I, I, I keep it up, and the compost makes my uh, produce so much better. Oh, fantastic. And given the, where you live, um, do you have an actual garden space, or are you growing in pots? I mean, what, what kind of garden do you have? Well, I've been on a wait list for a community garden for a really long time, but until that happens, I got really lucky you know, before the pandemic, uh, we moved two blocks away. And part of the reason we moved is because it had this amazing kind of back terrace. And it's kind of graded in in a way that you can really only with the space put a bunch of pots on the, the shelf. And so I have a bunch of different plants throughout the year that are hanging or uh, kind of on this, this shelf that overlooks kind of like the, essentially like the New York City uh, garbage courtyard <laughs> that my building is <laughs> over. Um, and I fight with the rats all the time because let me tell you, they're massive. They're like World War One side rats down there. Um, and I've cried many times <laughs> when they've eaten my produce, but I've learned how to you know, put cayenne pepper there and kind of ward off ward off the rats. And so I can only do certain things. You know, I, I originally, you know, tried even composting or using some of my eggshells and my plots that way or egg shells really attract the rats. So, you know, I can only do so much, but I'm hanging a lot of different herbs now. And in the summer, I'm doing a full Italian garden of peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, the whole nine yards. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Um, I'm assuming that you don't have any chickens or other forms of livestock in your garden. No, no, just my <laughs> somewhat sentient worms. Um, <laughs> but I would love to. And the rats, the rats that are sometimes Yeah, there. well, but, those don't um, count. Those, those are, in New York especially, those are a whole nother species. I mean, they're just... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I will say that our, our it was a huge deal this year when our CSA uh, desk down the street uh, actually has chickens from our farm. We actually have a coop now, even in our community garden there where we get the CSA, uh, which has been awesome to see. And I always love saying hi to them. Oh, wonderful. How many chickens are there? Just three and yeah. not too many. No. But that's small, still... small New York City garden. It's OK. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So so turning back to meat and especially um, the issues of competition. Uh, I guess it was like four years ago, I talked with UW law professor Peter Karstensen about competition or the lack of competition facing farmers and ranchers. And this is something that you address in your book. 
Um, so could you tell me just in in brief a little bit about what you have found about the competition, especially that smaller scale producers are facing in, in today's market? Yeah, Peter has really been beating the drum on this and has been just a really um, pioneering voice, um, shedding light on how antitrust has been ignored in the meat industry and how, you know, this entire industry was really gutted over the past few decades. And it's led to this really serious imbalance of power. And while, you know, alternative food systems like co-ops or, you know, uh, CSAs, local food hubs have been trying to kind of counter that power imbalance, it's it's been super difficult because there really just has been so much consolidation. I mean, since merger mania, for example, like in the 1980s, when just, you know, there was just so many different of these big corporations fighting with each other, outbidding each other, and then kind of swallowing up the big companies, the smaller ones were ended up going bankrupt or, or kind of getting forced out of the business because they couldn't hack it anymore. But, you know, since the, the, the 1970s or so, you know, it's actually 1976, actually the same year that the EPA defined a CAFO, which is, you know, it's kind of feedlot system that's been one of the causes of so much of this harm. Um, but since 1976, you know, take, take the beef industry, for example, at that time, just five plants were responsible for 15 percent of the total beef produced in the country. But after the 80s and as so much of this consolidation and centralization pushed out the smaller plants and, and forced bigger plants to be erected, by 1998, two thirds of all beef were coming from just 14 plants. And in the pork industry, that was even more significant. Um, there were 12 plants in 1976 that were killing, you know, more than 1 million hogs a day. But by 1998, there were 30 plants and they were accounting for 90% of the entire pork industry. So you see less and less plants, bigger plants, and them all being controlled by a select few players. There's now, you know, four players that really have insane amounts of control on each of these sectors. Right. And could you could you tell me who those four companies are and and a little bit about how they got to be that way? I mean, we we didn't just come to these four plants. I mean, it took it took some time and and a little bit of doing. So if you could talk about that. Yeah, you know, Peter Carsonson, John Eichert, a lot of other uh, folks have done a lot of research over the years, which talks about how it was a conflating of factors as merger mania was, you know, pushing a lot of these companies to go public and then having then cheap capital driving more and more M&A and then these small, you know, a fewer amount of corporations were able to decide what plants to, to kill off, what plants to move, what plants to increase in size. There was also this pressure, this economic pressure, because, you know, the bigger these plants got, the better they were able to, you know, outlast some of the other issues that were happening, be it drought, um, that was hurting cattle production or, you know, uh, other just efficiencies that they were able to, you know, do better at. And that kind of pushed a lot of downward pressure further on the smaller plants, but also further on the producers. A lot of the bigger beef farmers started taking more and more share from the independent producers. And, you know, what you were left with was a lot of smaller, medium-sized plants, often in cities or uh, uh, for, closer to kind of some of the markets, but then further away from corn production, 
uh, it ended up with, you know, these plants just really not being able to hack it. A lot of them went bankrupt or a lot of them were bought out because they just didn't see an ability to continue. And it really took away a lot of the distribution and the geographic distribution of the plants themselves. But in beef, for example, there's there's four companies that control more than 80 percent of the industry. That's Tyson, Cargill, JBS and National. In pork, it's more than 70 percent. Again, you have Smithfield, JBS, Tyson, and then you have Hormel. Um, and in chicken, it's more than 60%. So again, these are it's so, so many. Again, you have Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride, which is backed by JBS, Sanderson and Wayne Farms, which is a merger that just was approved from antitrust regulators just this year. And then you also have Cook Foods, which is owned by a billionaire who's, you know, uh, quoted in the book and explained how he got there. And so, you know, Antitrust experts consider an uh, industry to be super consolidated if just four players control more than 25%. And so you have 60%, 70%, 80%. These are huge amounts of these industries that are controlled by just four players, and it's led to some really uncompetitive markets. Right. If you are just joining us, you are listening to A Public Affair. My name is Patty Peltecos, and I'm your host this hour. On today's show, writer Chloe Sorvino is talking with me about her new book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. Chloe covers agriculture and food for Forbes. And again, WORT listener, because today's show was pre-recorded, we will not be taking your questions during the hour. So, Chloe, um, do you see any signs of of change within this whole kind of consolidated, uh, vertically integrated industry that that somehow there that we might be closer to enforcing some of the antitrust laws in the meatpacking industry? And I'm thinking especially because of Lena Khan the new commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission. Um, it, it, does it seem like there might be a little bit of pushback against what what is really such a consolidated industry? Absolutely. I mean, there's never honestly been more momentum in the past 50 years than there is right now than to really address meat from an antitrust perspective. You have Lena Khan, the FTC, which obviously doesn't actually have any antitrust regulatory power on meatpacking itself, but it touches the fertilizer, touches the feed, it touches the retail. There's a lot of different aspects. And obviously, Lena has been very focused on big tech. But there has been, you know, the the new head of the DOJ as well, really came in with an antitrust focus as well. And so there's been a lot of interest. And there's been big investigations from DOJ, FTC that haven't happened for a really long time. But at the same time, there still have been concessions made, essentially, you know, the Sanderson Wayne Farms merger that was, you know, had scrutiny on it, but was eventually, you know, approved to go through. Uh, it, it, it was part of almost like a kind of backroom deal where they had to also sign a consent decree be, to acknowledge and make some changes for, you know, wage manipulation that I also cover in the book that, you know, has been a decades long scheme that the industry has been ignoring for a really long time. And antitrust regulators have only really started to look at and try to counterbalance. Um, And so there's been a lot of antitrust interest. Peter Carsonson talks about how, though, even though there has been more interest, we can't exactly wait 
for a lot of this to happen regulatorily because it just hasn't happened for so long and mm -hmm. it's been able to happen for so long. Um, and so there are also other ways to kind of try to create other counterbalances to this power problem, including creating a producer's union to try to make contracts more transparent and, and to give producers more of a say when it comes to dictating the terms or, or negotiating the terms with a meatpacker. And so later this year, or actually, I guess, right now, um, the, uh, the Congress will be working on the 2023 Farm Bill. So is that an area where you see some of this might be addressed? Or has the USDA just basically been kind of falling by the wayside and saying, yeah, we're just going to leave this alone? It's working. We're not going to mess with it. I mean, is the USDA hearing enough from enough people that it seems like it, it might make some movements and, and Congress as well? I mean, the USA has been addressing this and they've been putting out reports and they have been giving out different grants, especially to small processors and different programs. Although I will say there are some of these programs that I'm hearing about, you know, the Tyson, even the bigger players actually getting some of this money as well. And so I do think the devil is always in the details, unfortunately, but we do have an extremely rare and extremely important moment coming up with this farm bill because you know, just taking a step back just from a climate perspective here, you know, we really have seven years left to create the change that really, really needs to happen. The meatpacking industry has done irreversible damage. And this farm bill that's we're going to be that's going to be decided and debated on for this coming spring is for the next five years. That's a crucial, crucial part of, of that time frame where we need to be able to make serious, meaningful change and then also have those kinks worked out before 2030, before the climate crisis gets even worse. And so this farm bill is going to be huge for that. There are a lot of different groups like the National Young Farmers Coalition that are advocating more specifically for like land access for, for BIPOC farmers. And that's another way to counterbalance this also, you know, co-opting of, you know, private farmland, you know, billionaires like Bill Gates are now some of the biggest farmland owners in this country. And that also is, is creating a lot of this downward pressure. Um, and so that's one option, you know, I, I write in the book and I have advocated for universal food access, a public food sector to really be used to address, you know, this this accessibility imbalance as well. Um, and so that there, there's some of the some of the easy ways to do this, but it's really going to take everything we've got. And obviously also you could talk about subsidies for days and, and how, you know, simple things like why do these farmers get subsidies or, or benefits when they don't have to do simple sustainable practices like cover cropping or, you know, something that would actually clearly make a huge difference, meaningful difference right now. Um, but, you know, uh, lots to be debated. Right. So, Chloe, you write quite a bit in the book about um, the firm JBS, which is a Brazilian based company. And. So I, I have a number of questions about JBS, but I'm I'm really curious what got you what got you going on JBS because it looks like you have done just a tremendous amount of research on on the firm JBS. And I guess I should also ask you to explain to listeners what JBS is and a little of its history. Absolutely. So this book in some ways was really inspired by going down the rabbit hole of what JBS is. JBS is the world's largest meat packer. It became the world's largest meat packer in just a very short amount of time, just in the past decade. And it's a, a company from Brazil 
that's family owned. It was started by this kind of patriarchal father who was slaughtering only a few oxen a day in this rural area in Brazil and found some luck because the capital of Brasilia was moved really close and they started getting a lot of kind of good luck and this company started growing very quickly. And then uh, his younger sons eventually took over the company and had these massive ambitions to take their meatpacking company around the globe and really make a name for themselves. And how they did that, which my book goes into, is through a lot of preferential treatment, ill-gotten gains, this massive bribery scheme that ended up touching thousands of politicians in Brazil, three presidents in Brazil, including the one that's sitting on the presidency again today, um, uh, bribes uh, different apartments. Uh, there was a $1.5 million apartment in New York City that was used as a bribe. and it, it, it just this kind of wild tale and the Americans really have no idea where their food comes from. And the JBS story is this example of when extreme wealth, when billionaires can kind of go in and, and, and co-opt a market in the blink of an eye with no one really understanding who they are or what they've done. And I can go into some of the kind of crazy details, but the story of JBS is truly like one of the most mind-boggling extremes examples of 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 how our meatpacking industry can can be taken over very quickly and how it's become so vulnerable because of this consolidation well and i was really curious in reading reading the chapter on jbs um and thinking okay so president lula is now going to be back in office and and I'm I'm thinking, okay, I'm I'm reading what Chloe has written here about JBS and how these people kind of worked the system in Brazil to get what they needed. Um, and I'm wondering, so Brazil's own meat industry seems like it's fairly young, and and of course it is expanding into the Amazon. So how is this all going to play out if? President Lula is talking about, you know, really, really cutting back on um, expanding and increasing cattle and farming in the Amazon. How is he going to do that if he has this company like JBS and the cattle ranchers and farmers who are so determined to open up the Amazon for, for their farming and ranching? It's a great million dollar question. And, and JBS uh, has been the company, I'll say, that has been the most uh, advertising and most prominent about touting its climate goals and its sustainability goals. While at the same time, there are reports that constantly come out. There was a report that came out, you know, just a few weeks ago, right before the book came out, about new links to deforestation that their cattle or their meat has been, you know, connected to. And it's this really uh, stark problem because, you know, Lula has been putting out, his past administration had did a lot for hunger, um, has continued, said he wants to try to do a lot more for that. But at the same time, there's a lot of these backroom deals and a lot of these shady practices that continue to happen there. And by the way, a lot of the meat that is allegedly linked to deforestation in the Amazon 
is often also getting imported back to America. And, you know, they all they have to do is process it a tiny bit more at an American plant. And then they're able to say it's a product of the USA. And no one knows that this is likely meat that's very directly, you know, deforesting the Amazon and stymieing one of their last, last abilities to really uh, stave off climate disaster. Um, and, you know, so the problem is ongoing. JBS is a family company, first and foremost. The Batista brothers, who really kind of led this scheme around a decade ago, they've been essentially taken out of the day-to-day, -day, taken off the public-facing, you know, roles of the company, but they still are the top shareholders. They're still the ones that are now, you know, back at their parent holding company, which is the largest uh, owner of JBS. It's still on the board, still voting. Their, one of their children is now a key uh, executive at JBS and, you know, this still revolving door uh, continues. Um, and, and that's really important because JBS continues to make decisions like continuing to, you know, have meat that is linked to de deforestation. But also there's just still a lot of questions around how the bribery scheme they pulled off was able to do what it did in America and why they really haven't been held, you know, for that as, as much as they really could be. And so are there laws in place? I mean, we're, we're talking about the U.S. food system. And there is, of course, the, the issue of country of origin labeling, um, which just keeps getting, you know, shot down. We, we don't have country of origin labeling in the U.S. for, for meat and food products. But there's also this whole ownership of of a major part of our food system that is, you know, that belongs to a foreign firm. And and I believe National, which is another major mm -hmm. meat processor, they are also a Brazilian company. So have has anyone in Congress kind of talked about this or said this is something that we need to do something about? And are there laws in place that, that could do something about this whole ownership issue? The calls have also been coming from inside the house, I'll say, but they haven't really been addressed. There mm. has been a slow trickle. I've been covering this and following this case since since 2017 when the original kind of whistleblower uh, tapes were, were leaked. Um, about JBS. About JBS, okay. uh, which is when, when the billionaire Joesley Batista was wearing a wire uh, with then President Michelle Temer, um, and it was kind of what kind of helped them uh, get their you know, lesser convictions. Um, but you know, Senator Rubio, uh, Senator Menendez, um, Representative Rosa DeLauro, um, these have been some of the Congress folk who have been pushing for this the most. Rosa DeLauro has brought it to. Vilsack multiple times in public and in private. Um, Rubio and Menendez have sent many letters over the years, particularly asking for CFIS investigations of with Janet Yellen in the Treasury Department. I'm sorry, because, what is a CFIS investigation? Yeah, like a CFIS investigation. So yeah, CIFUS, um, the, the Committee for you know International um, you know Investment. Um, and okay. so, so essentially, what happens is you know there is this kind of small group within the Treasury Department which is tasked with looking at uh, acquisitions by foreign owners. And it's a group that doesn't put out a lot of work publicly, but they constantly are asked to investigate 
And, you know, these two Batista brothers have 250 companies in 30 countries around the world. And so uh, this has been a this has been an ongoing ask from, you know, bipartisan senators to look into the full extent of their ownership in the U.S. and abroad and see what other violations there have been. Um, as of right now, there is no CFIS investigation, but it's, again, constantly asked for. I will note, though, that, you know, at the same time, JBS continues to get contracts with the federal government and state governments for public schools um, funding or uh, for public school lunches and, and different meat to be sent to different institutions. And is that the same for, for National, the other Brazilian-owned company, or less less so than, than JBS? JBS is getting more um, contracts than National. Um, and while, you know, National takes it, all the, all the big corporations obviously are, you know, because there's been so much consolidation and at the same time the government is so big. And so the government doesn't want to work with, you know, dozens of companies. They want to work with only one or two. Right. And so that's why some of these contracts happen like that. But I will say it's important because, you know, that the whistleblower, that Temer recording that I was referencing earlier, I mean, there was U.S. public contract signed for JBS to get, you know, millions of dollars for another public school, you know, meet program, even just that day. And so these it, it, it continues to really be ignored wow. by government. Again, if you are just joining us, you are listening to a pre-recorded edition of A Public Affair. My name is Patty Peltecos, and I'm your host this hour. And on today's show, writer Chloe Servino is talking with me about her new book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. So, Chloe, moving away from JBS and and the meat packers for a moment, um, another part of your book that uh, that I found really fascinating because we have just well, I guess we're still living through COVID is the use of antibiotics in in animal feed, and I know that there are some rules that have kind of work to decrease the use of pesticide or not pesticides, uh, antibiotics in animal feed. But the U.S. livestock industry seems to use far more antibiotics than any other meat industry throughout the world. And in Europe, as I know you know, um, farms that are, are using confined confinement facilities to raise meat, especially pigs, um, have found a way to do this without resorting to the use of, of antibiotics. So can you talk about what you have seen um, in, in your reporting about antibiotic use here in the U.S. in our livestock? It's one of the most startling things that I've continued to have to deal with about this book and the reporting and this research because climate change is going to make antibiotic resistance so much worse. And right now the meat industry is really not doing anything, or at least the U.S. meat industry is not doing nearly enough as it should be to quell this. And while, you know, it, it, it was banned several years ago for the use as a growth promoter, it, it, it still continues to be used more than it really needs to be. If you simply give these animals more access to air and simple, simple 
you know, things we all would think is just humane. That's one of the reasons why this use could could clearly go down and it doesn't because these producers continue to say that they need to have animals in confinement. Um, and so that's, that's important because, you know, sales have ebbed and flowed over the years, but they're really at a plateau and they don't seem to be going down anymore. And antibiotic sales need to go down if we really want to be able to not have one of the truly most pressing public health issues that is facing us. And, you know, we can see this in a lot of different ways and how there's just this murky situation for how antibiotics are being used in our meat industry because there are now even, you know, new lawsuits, new class actions and companies that are alleging that the companies and the corporations certifications that are touting the antibiotic free meat actually have a lot of what's being sold as antibiotic free really actually having been touched or been used or been raised with antibiotics. And there's really no validation in what the labels that we see at grocery stores are, you know, putting out. And at the end of the day, there are a lot of incentives for these producers to continue to use antibiotics and then misreport or let some animals slide through the cracks. And so how do you see any change being made in that? I mean, we we have, I mean, I don't know if there's any type of enforcement. And as you've mentioned, um, the labels can't really be trusted. I mean, there's the organic label, but that's, you know, in and of itself a, a whole, a whole nother um, issue. Uh, so, so there are all these major producers and they're relying on antibiotics because of course they're keeping these animals in confined, in, in confinement. Um, so short of kind of doing away with the whole system of confined animal feeding operations, of which we have over 300 here in Wisconsin, um, how how do you see any change coming into into that particular aspect of of the meat industry there needs to be a, a state solution there also are some emerging you know private solutions but you know the USDA right now essentially has companies that are you know selling meat with an antibiotic free label just signing an affidavit and they're testing on a tiny fraction of 1% of what's actually on the market. So a simple way to do that would be, you know, to test what's out and, and increase testing. Now, there are way more effective ways to do that as well. You know, I think uh, I can get into that. But there, there's no validation right now with these kind of USDA approved labels. And, and that just seems to be a really big loophole to me and, and to others. Um, but there are startups. So one I talk about in the book is Food ID and they're working in the plants. Um, they're, they're very secretive, very stealth in these plants because these meat packers don't like it um, that, that, you know, that, that, that to, to have outsiders in these plants. But Food ID is, is doing simple kind of lateral flow tests, like a similar type of like a COVID test or a pregnancy test. And they're able to test meat that's just coming off the line to see that if it was raised with antibiotics or not. And then if they are, they're able to get that meat off quickly and then and then divert it to places that aren't going to sell them with an antibiotic free label. Um, because right now, otherwise, the USDA, whenever they are testing it, you know, they're testing it a few days after it's probably already sold. And then it's a simple it's like a recall. It's it's, it's not as proactive as it really could be. Mm. And I'm just curious. I mean, 
uh, some years ago, my husband and I had goats, and I tried as hard as I could to um, to raise them without resorting to antibiotics. But there are times you absolutely have to use antibiotics to to stop an infection from spreading from one animal to another and from from getting worse. So in cases like that, I mean, would an animal need to be, you know, held aside for a certain amount of time before it could be taken to slaughter and for processing, knowing that it had had antibiotics? I mean, how how would that work, given that there are times when even the most humane farmer says, well, I've, I've got to use this. Absolutely. And I spoke to Temple Grandin a lot for this book. And, and it's one of the things she really taught me. And um, I'm very clear about it. You know, if an animal And just sick, explain who Temple that. Grandin is. Yes. Um, so Temple Grandin is an iconic slaughterhouse advocate and autism advocate who has really used um, her, you know, innate ability to connect with animals and also then make sure that the slaughterhouses that she's designing are more humane for these animals. Um, and so I, I spoke with her a lot for this book. And one of the things she really taught me was just that, that when an animal is sick, you need to give it the antibiotics it needs. And that's perfectly okay. What we need to make sure is that there's just clear markings and clear separations for those animals, because there's always going to be a market, unfortunately, or for better or for worse, for those antibiotic-fed animals. And that's fine. Just the problem is what happens when there's antibiotic-free labels on that meat. But, you know, the cooked market, you know, most institutions are, are you know, institutional purchasers like the U.S. government, you know, with public school lunches or prisons, nursing homes, a lot of hospitals even, which is kind of interesting, yes. um, you know, that they're, they're the ones that are getting, you know, the, the antibiotic meat often. Um, but it, it's important that that market it's never going to be a zero percent antibiotics. It just has to reduce a lot. Right. And I I really want to get into another part of the book, um, which is the alternative meat industry and everything that seems to be happening um, with alternative meats. And especially if, if you could talk about one of the things that you write about in the book, which is dumb money and dumb money and and all of all of the tech around alternative meats could could you tell me about that yeah so for my time with the billionaire beat and you know just i do a lot of work with forbes 30 under 30 and i'm just covering this food industry all the time and so for the past few years i was you know getting an onslaught of pitches hearing all about these major public you know big funding announcements and founders attacking the future of food and going to change the way we eat. A lot of billionaires were telling me how they're investing in these companies. A lot of founders were saying, you know, they're, they're putting their whole livelihoods behind trying to figure this out. And at the end of the day, what I was also then seeing and taking a step back was a lot of energy and a lot of capital going into this, but then no actual adoption, not a lot of real you know, no one's really taking a bite out of big meat. And that's what kind of really has to happen at the end of the day, or else industrial meat just kind of can continue with its status quo. But there is this influx of folks who, investors who would come to me and say, I can't tell you, you know, chomping at the bit, salivating, you know, saying it feels like the early days of the internet, you know, just, just so excited to 
be able to get in and be able to see the profit that they could get in a three to five year timeline. And I wanted to write about, you know, the alternative protein boom and, and bust really from that perspective, because I think so few people really understand it from how the investors or the billionaires are talking to me about it are looking at these companies. They are looking at it for profit, even if they are talking about how you know they're invested or interested in the climate or they're looking at the climate in mind. At the end of the day, these funds you know, need their returns. They are on very strict cycles. And that cycle puts a lot of pressure on the founders and on these companies. And what we had was a few short years of billions of dollars flowing into these firms. And a lot of them, you know, following some of the original deals, like Impossible or Beyond. And then there's just a horde of copycats that are then being funded by the private equity folks who, you know, maybe their fund just turned over. You know, it was this very interesting time where in the Silicon Valley, you know, private equity and like big venture capital side of things, there were a bunch of years where they had invested a lot in cloud and SaaS and really kind of big hardware, software things. And then those funds had rolled over and then they were kind of sitting on all this new money that they were going to be able to invest in new funds that they had. And so there was a huge amount of capital in the market and it all just rushed essentially into alternative protein and what those investors with their dumb money, you know, eventually realize is that you can't put a food company on a three to five year venture capital timeline. You know, food is not a cloud company. It is not, you know, a creator company. At the end of the day, people only have one mouth and they're only able to eat so much and you're only able to buy so much because we have been all been also been hurting with downward pressure and, you know, no inflation back then, but now a lot of inflation where you're really seeing this, you know, this really, you know, this shakeout really happening. And so, you know, I did a lot of work to realize that decade prior to this, there were only a few investors that were investing and they were looking at the food industry as very stable. They would look get, you know, maybe two to three times a return um, but they wouldn't expect as much. Then a lot of these new investors were coming in and these their bigger deals happening and they were now all of a sudden getting excited because there were 10 times returns happening, but then there also were just as many zero times returns or write-offs, you know, companies that they've invested in going bankrupt. And, you know, the more big money that comes in, the more companies that, you know, kind of flock to that money then eventually go bust. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Well, and and I guess, I mean, I, I have a couple of different thoughts. Um, one is, you know, we, we have animals, we have livestock that have evolved that um, are, are the perfect creatures for taking what the sun has provided us, you know, with, with grass and plant life, and they can convert it into protein that we as humans can eat. Um, I, we we don't need to cre- recreate all of technology because we we have animal life that can do it. Um, and I I understand that there are people who, for moral reasons, um, may not want to eat meat. But then, to me, that means we we should be treating the animals that we are eating better than we do, instead of keeping them in confinement. If we allowed those animals to graze and and live outside the way they evolved to, 
we would be changing the whole equation by saying, you know, we're not going to have this huge quantity of animals because the land could not support it. But we are going to have quality animals who, who live a quality life. And, and that, yes, there, there's a place for alternative proteins. But I look at the alternative proteins and I think, you know, they're just, they, they're ultra-processed. They are not a, a whole and, and I mean this in, in the sense of, you know, like a whole grain. They are not a whole food. They're, they're slices and dices of something else, but not, not a real food. So, sorry, I know I'm, I'm going off here on, on a little tangent, but um, it, does this does – this, whole sector of the industry look to you like it is going to be able to maintain whatever momentum it had? Or is it just pretty much collapsing on itself? And and what are what are you seeing in, in this, Chloe? You said it so well, you know, it's one of my biggest problems is that they're ultra processed. And the other thing is, it's really, you know, maintaining a lot of the structures of big meat and a lot of the ingredients are monocropped or synthetically produced with, you know, it's not attra- attacking any of the pollution soybeans. issues, soil, yeah, soil issues that we're all dealing with. Um, yeah, one of the other reasons I, I, I want to write this book was when the United Soybean Board pitched me on Impossible Foods and I was like, hold up, what's happening here? That was like seven years ago, you know? Um and so uh, there's so much there's so much to to break down, but I think the the most important thing I think from a power perspective is that a lot of these companies are are you know kind of then hoarding the intellectual property of this potential you know future food while you know having it be at a super high price point not really actually addressing the fundamentals of environmental de- desecration that they're saying that they're attacking. And then also just kind of the in- innate like narcissism and ego and, 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 and to your point, you know, thinking that they could figure out something better in a few short years and what's been over generations and in, in different societies and different, uh, you know, science too. There's, there is science to multi-paddock adaptive, grazing and and how the bison you know really healed our great plains um and you're not getting any of that with where this movement is going and you know i even had a a, my last scoop of 2022 came out um uh, right before christmas and it was a story about the company tattoo chef which you might know from the big national advertising campaign they put out one of the kind of plant-based companies very plant-based very in your face about it and i had heard that they were looking to add a line with meat because they're not profitable and they're struggling so much as a new publicly traded company that they were now trying to figure out how to make some money and how to change their momentum. And if it was just very stark to me that a plant-based company that was, you know, really for that consumer is now completely 180 and now trying to get meat on its menu. Um, And I think that's just a sign of the times I hear from a lot of investors about, you know, other companies that they've invested in just getting rolled up together, two or three companies at once, them just writing off these companies or having them, you know, not exist anymore. And then you also have the big players beyond has lost 
so much of its market share since it went public and, and, and soared so high in 2019. And then Impossible has, you know, seven billion dollars or so in capital and they've wanted to go public at a 10 billion dollar valuation and now will they be able to not sure um and definitely not at that price point so there's a lot of investors and institutions that are going to be losing money on alternative protein especially this year the the shakeout is going to continue to get very drastic very quickly so chloe um i realize we live in a capitalist system but does money, especially big money, need to be separated from food? It's a great question. And as a, as a writer, as someone who I hope to inspire folks to think big, I would say absolutely yes. Um, I also think there are other ways that this can happen. And Mary Nestle, who I know you've had on this show before, mm-hmm. talks about a lot. She's quoted in my book, you know, why does a food company have to be publicly traded? Why do we need to have a company that's public and have the excuse of, no, I have to have shareholder returns and I have to give money back to my shareholders or else I'll get sued? You know, I don't think a food company necessarily should be public for that reason. But at the same time, again, we are in a capitalistic system and there are ways to work through these issues that have been created in our food system through market driven solutions. The market, at at this point, we only have seven years to make these really, really big changes. And so like a market driven solution really is what's going to have to happen. Um, And that can look like a lot of different things. Okay. Well, Chloe, we are getting right up to the end of the hour here. So do you have anything else you would like to tell listeners that we we haven't had a chance to cover in, in the time that we've had on the radio so far? I'm always excited when folks are excited to take an active role in their food system, whatever that means. It could be joining a co-op, working a shift there, joining a CSA. It could be running for your local school board and then trying to impact the purchasing of that school. There are so many different ways to do it. Um, And I just am really excited that now is the time and there's big momentum to make the change that has to happen now. We can't keep pushing these goals off for years or decades in the future. Meaningful, substantial reform is is time for now. Okay. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for joining me on today's A Public Affair. It has just been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Oh, you're, it's, it's been great. So again, my guest today has been Chloe Sorvino, author of Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. You can find Chloe's writing in Forbes.com, where she covers agriculture and food. You can also find out more at her website, ChloeSorvino.com. Thanks to Jade for producing. Thanks to Sholly, our news director. And thank you, WORT listener, for listening. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airways from unknown positions.